the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Codes set down by whatever governments we live under. That's Romans 13. Should we follow the Old Testament laws? Some think we should. But in our current social climate, some of those laws would seem just a little harsh, wouldn't they? On the other hand, if we think about what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually holds us to a higher standard than that of first century Israel. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff continues this series of lessons from Matthew 5 and 6 about the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Now in verses 17 and 18 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, let's not forget that the entire Old Testament was actually about Jesus. Let's listen now as Pastor Steve explains. Now, this is a very important truth to grasp. If you don't understand what Christ is saying about the fulfillment of the law, especially the law, you you will tend to be confused about the law. And that's why there are a lot of believers, especially you see this in Jewish believers, who put themselves under the law again. So they feel obligated to, to have a Passover Seder. They feel like they can't eat sweet and sour pork and things of that nature. They they have to do these things. It's Saturday is more important than any other day. And you see them putting themselves back under the law. Unless you understand what Jesus meant, you might want to do that yourself, but you don't need to. When Jesus said that he had, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he essentially meant that he was the completion or the fulfillment of all scripture. Now, it's not hard to see how, how he completes or fulfills the prophets because they gave specific messianic prophecies, such as where he was to be born, Bethlehem, how he was to die. Isaiah 53 speaks of that. Uh, The resurrection, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 speak of that, and Psalm 16 and all that. So there are many prophecies that you can see literally fulfilled by Christ's life and ministry. But a more challenging question is, how did Jesus fulfill the law of Moses? Those laws that were revealed in the first five books of the Bible, also, by the way, referred to as the Torah. Well, the Old Testament law can be divided into three areas. Now, listen closely. This is is helpful. In fact, I just uh, spoke at a conference recently where somebody asked me a very question about this, this issue in this verse. The Old Testament law can be divided into three areas. First of all, you had ceremonial laws. Secondly, there were judicial laws. And then thirdly, there were moral laws. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. So let's go through that and explain that and what what we mean by this. First of all, he fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws, those laws that govern the way Israel worshiped the Lord, such as you have the priesthood, sacrificial system, Jewish feasts, dietary laws, ritual cleansings, all, all that would come under ceremonial laws. They were ceremonies. 
Jesus fulfilled them all. The New Testament makes it very clear that all of the Old Testament ceremonies were mere symbols, folks. They were only pictures. They were not realities. They, they were not the substance. Christ is the substance. They were pictures that pointed to him. Once he came, you didn't, you don't need these shadows. You don't need these symbols. They've lost their significance. That's why, in fact, the entire book of Hebrews is all about that. Come out of Judaism. You have something far better in Christ. He is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. He's superior to the sacrificial system. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Sabbath. All these things. The Sabbath is a little bit different. You can go back on the studies on the Ten Commandments to see that. But, but that's the message of, of Hebrews. The symbols have lost their significance. And that's why the Apostle Paul specifically addressed this. Colossians chapter 2. In fact, I, I wrote a little booklet, I think it's in our booklet rack, on messianic synagogues in Judaism, which, which people in that put themselves under the law. And I, I wrote a booklet at the request of uh, Ron Grossman and his mission to Jewish people, answering this very question, are we under the law? Do we need to do this stuff? Well, look at what Paul said in, in Colossians 2.16. Very pointed, very clear. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food, or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things, notice how he, how he interprets these things, which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. These verses answer the question of whether or not you need to be biblically obligated to keep kosher, to eat only kosher food, or worship on Saturdays, or keep the Jewish holidays. The answer is no, because those laws, those ceremonial laws... Only were symbols pointing to Christ, and they were fulfilled in him. That's why on the night he was betrayed and arrested, Jesus changed the symbols of his, uh, of his death from the Passover feast to the Lord's Supper. The Passover feast had already served its purpose because it pointed people forward to Christ as the Passover lamb. That's why you don't need to have a Passover Seder. Just uh, yesterday, I was talking to my dad, and he said he was going to celebrate the Passover. He said, do you have the little books on that? I said, no, I'm sure they're in our area, but I'm not going to. And you know why? Because in Jesus, we do celebrate that. We do celebrate that. That was just symbolic. You don't have to go back to the symbolism. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that's fulfilled. And, and every day you, you celebrate the Passover. Every day you recognize that it was fulfilled in him, you are celebrating, you are keeping it. And, and that's why, as I said, the symbols of the Lord's Supper now serve as reminders to look back at Christ's death. You don't need something pointing to look forward. It's already happened. Now, the point of all of this is to, is to say that Jesus did not abolish any of the ceremonial laws. He just fulfilled them. And in seeing these ceremonies and rituals fulfilled in Christ, you have kept all of them in him. Every day you keep them in him. What about the judicial laws? Those were the civil codes that governed Israel as God's unique covenant people, his chosen nation. These were legislative laws that dealt with justice and, and legal issues. And these were laws that really uh, kept everything going in Jewish society. They kept order in that society. Well, how did Jesus fulfill those laws? Well, in two ways. He fulfilled all of those laws in the sense that, that first of all, he is the embodiment of justice. You want legal justice? He's the embodiment of all justice. But secondly, and I think primarily the way he fulfilled all of this so that we are not under any obligation to keep those laws, is this. His death marked 
Israel's rejection of their Messiah. And by virtue of their official rejection, God has temporarily, not permanently, temporarily set the Jewish nation aside as he today builds his church made up of Jew and Gentile. The church is is not Israel. The church is something brand new. We are not Old Testament Israel. And therefore, we are not governed by those unique judicial laws that were specifically designed to bring orderliness to their society. That's why First Peter chapter 1 tells us that we're a new nation. We're not the same old nation. We're not Israel. First Peter 1 verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now notice this, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are not Old Testament Israel, and therefore we are not mandated as the church to follow those civil codes. So you know what? We don't stone stubborn children to death, and we don't kill those who are guilty of adultery. What do we do then? How do we have orderliness? Instead, the New Testament teaches that we are to abide by the judicial codes set down by whatever governments we live under. That's Romans 13. Every Christian lives under different governments, or Christians live in different nations under different governments. Obey whatever your government is. Israel was known in the Old Testament as a theocracy. God directly ruled over them. That's not the way it is today. He rules through the various governments. So those are the civil codes that that we obey. And unless the government tells us to disobey Scripture, we are obligated to obey them. They are, according to Romans 13, they are the ministers of God to us. So Jesus didn't replace the ceremonial judicial laws prescribed in the Old Testament. He just fulfilled them. You, You do keep them when you believe in him. What about the moral laws, those laws that address moral and ethical issues such as the Ten Commandments and and all the other moral principles revealed in Scripture? How did Jesus fulfill them? Well, he fulfilled them in, in, in two ways. He fulfilled all the moral laws by keeping them himself. Jesus never sinned. His perfect life was a life of of sinlessness and perfect righteousness. He obeyed all the laws that you and I, moral laws and all the other laws, he obeyed them. You and I could not and have never kept. His righteousness then, watch this, becomes our righteousness in a legal sense when you believe on him. That is precisely what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we, when we believe in him, he means, might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus took our sin, the sin of all those who would believe upon him, when he died on the cross. And when we believe in him, God takes his legal righteousness and puts it on our account. His perfect righteousness, I should say, and puts it on our legal account. So, question is, are we still to keep God's moral laws? Absolutely. Because God's moral laws are the eternal expression of his will for believers in every age. It doesn't matter whether you're Israel, it doesn't matter whether you're the church age, a church age believer. These are not like ceremonial and judicial laws. They never change. These are not things that were unique for Israel. Righteousness and holiness never changed. They were relevant for God's Old Testament people. They're relevant for God's New Testament people. And I said he's fulfilled it in two ways. One is by his legal righteousness, but there is a sense in which 
He is fulfilling it in us as the Holy Spirit works to give us grace to obey his righteous demands. If you will, look at Romans 8, 4. Romans 8, it starts actually in verse 3. I want you to see this. For what the law could not do, the law couldn't do something. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What he means is this. The law is perfect. The law is holy. The law is wonderful. But the law could not save you. The law reveals your sin. The law could not save us because our flesh is sinful. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So God did something the law was unable to do. What did he do? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus was not a sinner, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was a man without sin. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, meaning he died on behalf of our sin. So that, verse 4, the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. But now it says we walk according to the spirit, meaning that, that you and I have been given as believers the capacity to obey. We may not always obey, but the general trend and direction of our lives is obedience to the righteous demands of the, of the law. We are not, and I'll I'll throw out a big word, antinomian. An an antinomian is someone who says no law. We do away with the law. The Bible says that's, that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. And I would encourage you to go back over the series on the Ten Commandments to see that those things are in effect today. So if the Pharisees thought, as some still think today, that Jesus was some radical, misguided, off the wall rabbi who came to teach his own unique brand of Judaism, they're dead wrong as are people today who believe that. Jesus made it clear that he did not come to destroy, but rather to fulfill God's word. His ministry wasn't in opposition to scripture, but he actually completed what the scriptures declared. And to show, watch this, to show what a high regard he had for the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus made in verse 18, one of the most significant statements about the Bible found in all of the Bible. Look at verse 18. For truly, I say to you, Now, once again, that's that dogmatic formula. But I'm telling you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, before we analyze this, before we we dissect it and look at the individual parts of this statement, I want you to know the essential meaning, the big picture, the essential thought here. The main point of Christ's statement is to say that God's word is permanent. It is absolutely permanent, will never pass away. Everything in it eventually will be accomplished, even down to the tiniest and most minute points. Now, that's the essential meaning. It will all be accomplished. It will never pass away until everything is fulfilled. It's permanent. Now, this is an incredible statement, an absolutely incredible statement, because it affirms that everything in Scripture will be fulfilled down to the most diminutive point. Now, let me show you this. This is remarkable. When Jesus spoke of the smallest letter, it may say in your Bibles, the jot and tittle, the smallest letter, he was referring to what's called in Hebrew, the yod. The yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's so small, it it looks something like our uh, apostrophe in English. It's just, just a tiny, it's the smallest letter. And the stroke, what was he referring to? The stroke isn't even part of the Hebrew alphabet in, in, as a letter. The stroke refers to a tiny marking, an extension of some Hebrew letters that help distinguish one letter from another. It would be like uh, in English, uh, 
distinguishing a, a, a P from an R. It's just one little stroke that makes the R an R and different than a P. That's, that's a stroke. That's what he's talking about. Now, here's the amazing thing about this statement. There are over 66,000 yods in the Old Testament. And there are even more, just an immeasurable, innumerable number of little strokes in the Hebrew Old Testament. And yet Jesus said that not one of them will pass from God's word until all is accomplished. You realize what he's saying? What an, uh, an incredible affirmation of the trustworthiness of Scripture. Everything Jesus is saying, everything in the Bible that God said will happen, will happen. Everything, down to the smallest stroke, down to even a little apostrophe. The mission will be accomplished of all Scripture. This is a, a great truth for us to grasp because, you know, we live in a skeptical age when people do not believe in the Bible. And sometimes we waver about that. We live in a secular-minded age that scoffs at the Bible. And yet, for example, everything that Jesus said about his return will take place. Though the world laughs at it, the world doesn't take seriously the return of Christ. And yet, all those prophecies will be fulfilled. God's plan for Israel is another truth that not only unbelievers, but there are many believers who who think that God has simply set Israel aside permanently, that he's replaced Israel with the church. It's called replacement theology. Israel is insignificant. They're just another country in the Middle East. And um, all those promises, that's for the church. That's what many, many believe. And yet all of those Old Testament prophecies about a glorious kingdom in which the Messiah will reign out of the city of Jerusalem will be fulfilled. And all of the scriptures say about a future resurrection, the judgment seat of Christ, heaven and hell, and everything else that it says will take place, will take place. That's what Jesus is saying. Even down to the most minute detail of the scripture will be accomplished. Now, it's one thing, though, to say that we, we um, believe the Bible, as we should. It's this, even in an age of skepticism. But there's something more to this statement than just saying we, we believe that everything that God said will come to pass. There's something more in the statement to Christ than just believing the Bible. Notice this. In mentioning the smallest letter and stroke of of the Hebrew alphabet, Jesus not only affirmed that every part of Scripture was inspired, all God-breathed, and without any error at all, but he also affirmed that all the Bible, all of it in its entirety is, watch this, authoritative authoritative. Jesus had such a high regard for scripture that he put value on even the smallest markings of Hebrew letters. For him, all scripture had authority. In fact, he said in John 10.35, he said, the scripture cannot be broken, cannot be broken. This is a, 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 a truth that ought to impact your life, my life in a tremendous way. And I, I want to just, I want you to see that it's one thing to theologically hold to the accuracy of the Bible, as I think most of us, certainly all of us who know Christ do. We, we would say doctrinally, that's where we're coming from. But for the Lord, holding to the accuracy of the Bible meant that it was authority in his life. It meant that it was sufficient in every area. It meant that it settled disputes. It meant that he obeyed every part of it. It it meant a lifestyle of righteousness. It wasn't just a theological compartment in his life. It meant life itself. And I want to show you that Jesus used the Bible, even the smallest part of it, 
to affirm great doctrines and belief systems. Let's look at Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we have a section beginning this chapter, but, but especially in verse 23, where Jesus silences his critics. And I want you to follow the argument here. It says in verse 23 of Matthew 22, on that day, some Sadducees, that's another Jewish sect, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him. Now, let me stop there. The, the Sadducees, in contrast to the Pharisees, the only thing they really agreed on was killing Christ. But theologically, they were miles apart. The Sadducees denied the resurrection, but it wasn't the resurrection just of the body that they denied. The Sadducees said, there's no afterlife. You die, that's it. It's over. Now, they came to Jesus with a question to trip him up, not because they wanted an answer. Here's what they said. Teacher, Moses said, and by the way, let me add to this, that to them, Moses was the only authority. The prophets had, did not have the authority that Moses had. So if Moses didn't say it, they didn't believe it. And they said, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his, uh, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. And that is a law in, uh, under the Mosaic Code. Now, they said there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife, uh, the seven, will she be? For they all married her. And, and you just know they're laughing at the Lord. You just know one is, is asking, but the others are standing around just snickering. Let's see him get out of this. Now, notice our Lord's bluntness. There's no politically correct tact here. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Yeah, I just love that. We would have said something like, you know, you have a point, but let me, let me just share this with you. But not the Lord. Very blunt, very bold. You're mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. I just love that. You're wrong. You're wrong. There's nothing right to what you're saying. You're wrong. You don't understand God's word, nor do you understand God's power. And then he explains, and I, I, I'm getting to the point that I want you to see. He said, first of all, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in, in heaven. So you're, you're wrong to bring up a silly illustration like that. There's, there's no marriage in heaven. Secondly, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, now notice this, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And now he goes back and quotes their authority and his, I might add, Exodus 3, in which God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus adds, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You know why they were so astonished? You know what he was doing? Christ's entire argument was based on a single verb tense, a mere issue of Hebrew grammar. Notice in quoting Exodus, he said that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not he was their God. Meaning that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they had died many years ago, they were still alive. God is still their God. It's not in the past tense because they didn't die and that was it. That's what the Sadducees believed. Jesus said, no, he was their God. He continues to be their God in the present tense because they are alive in heaven, fellowshipping with him. Tremendous, tremendous. Just a single verb tense was used by the Lord to, to build a whole doctrine on and to really defend the doctrine. Wow, it really shouldn't surprise us that Jesus had such a mastery of Scripture. After all, he's the author. 
He knows all there is to know about its content and its meaning. And on the next Verse by Verse, we'll consider the importance of our knowing what it says because it's our final authority. We're glad you could be here as Pastor Steve Kreloff leads us in this series of studies of the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to visit Lakeside some Sunday, the address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Get more details such as service times and other information at lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. Verse by Verse is a faith-based ministry, and we are thankful for the generous listeners whose gifts make these broadcasts possible. If you'd like to participate, call Lakeside at the number I just gave, 727-441-1714, or go to the giving page at versebyverseradio.org. While you're at the website, please feel free to take advantage of our free audio files. You can download or stream any previous broadcast from the Message Archive page. That's at versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. On behalf of Pastor Steve Kreloff and everyone else here at Verse by Verse, thanks for listening. And come back next time as Pastor Steve shares what Jesus had to say about which commands in the Bible are optional. here to give you strength between three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver for the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.